Welcome ZooAssemblyers! My name is Zuka Zalishvili and I'm the founder of ZooAssembly. ZooAssembly is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2 CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose, or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZooSMLE. Now, let's start rolling. We are continuing our pediatrics episodes in the series, and today we will also talk about several conditions, and we will discuss the highest deal points about them. Let's start with coenoatresia. Coenoatresia is the obstruction at the level of the coene. Do you guys remember what does what the coana means? Coana is the space between the nasal cavity and the nasal pharynx. And there are two of them because we have two nostrils. And normally, coenate, they should be open. They should be patent. However, in some cases, there is either membranous or soft or the bony, the hard obstruction in the coana, which completely obstructs that space. Therefore, the baby cannot breathe normally with the nose. Usually, the way they describe coenoatresia in the case is that when the baby is being breastfed, this is when the baby becomes blue. And let's talk about why this happens. When the baby is being breastfed, it means that her or his mouth is occupied by breastfeeding, right? So they cannot breathe via mouth when they are being breastfed and at that time if they cannot breathe with their mouth and at the same time they cannot breathe with their nose then they have hypoxia which results in cyanosis and this is how we uh, see the cyanosis in patients with coenoatresia at the time when their mouth is occupied by being breastfed <clears throat> or so on uh, and Coenoatresia can be either unilateral, meaning it affects only one coena, or it might be bilateral. The way we can diagnose coenoatresia is that we need to insert the catheter in the patient's nose, and normally the catheter should be able to pass all the way through the nasal cavity, nasopharynx, oropharynx, and downwards, right? But if catheter gets lodged in the nasal cavity, at the junction of the nasal cavity and the nasopharynx, this is when we understand that there is some kind of obstruction at the coenal level, and then we can do the imaging if we want to confirm that's coenoatresia. However, imaging is not necessarily done, because inability of the catheter to pass through the nasal cavity is sufficient to make the diagnosis. Treatment of coenoatresia is surgical. We need to 
cut that membranous uh, obstruction or bony obstruction so that the kid can breathe normally. And this was a short discussion and review about coenotresia. Now we will discuss the causes of the neonatal respiratory distress, or NRD. Before we go on, let me tell you that neonatal respiratory distress is not the same thing as neonatal respiratory distress syndrome, which is just one subtype or one cause of the neonatal respiratory distress. There are three main causes of the respiratory distress in the neonates. This is transient tachypnea of the newborn, shortly TTN, respiratory distress syndrome, abbreviated as RDS, and then persistent pulmonary hypertension, abbreviated as PPH. We will compare and contrast these three causes of the neonatal respiratory distress according to the pathophysiology and the clinical features, and finally we will describe what we see on the chest x-ray in each of these conditions. Let's start with the pathophysiology of these three diagnoses. In TTN, the pathophysiology is that the baby does not expectorate amniotic fluid, which is aspirated in the alveoli at birth. In other words, when the baby is born, either vaginally or through C-section, some amount of amniotic fluid is naturally aspirated in the baby's alveoli. And, well, when the baby is coming out from the uh, vaginal uh, birth canal, this contraction of the vaginal muscles compresses the baby's thoracic cavity and forces the baby to expectorate that fluid. However, if the baby has baby is born via C-section, there is less stress and there is less contraction uh, on, on the baby. And therefore, these alveolar fluid can stay inside the alveoli. Let's compare the pathophysiology of TTN to that of RDS. We know about the respiratory distress syndrome that it is caused by surfactant deficiency. And if we remember the respiratory physiology from step one, when we have low amounts of surfactant, it means that surface tension increases and the increase in surface tension increases the collapsing pressure, which finally results in adhesive atelectasis. And uh, this is why the babies with respiratory distress syndrome develop the respiratory distress manifesting as grunting and accessory muscle use. In contrast, the pathophysiology of persistent pulmonary hypertension is pretty much self-explanatory from the name of this disease. As the name implies, there is persistently elevated pulmonary vascular resistance. In other words, normally when the baby is born and when the baby inhales first time through the mouth, oxygenation of the baby's blood increases and oxygenation of the lungs will cause diffuse pulmonary vasodilation. However, in some babies, the diffuse pulmonary vasodilation might not happen 
and those pulmonary vessels might stay constricted. This will result in persistent right-to-left shunt across the patent ductus arteriosus. Let's move on to clinical features. For TTN, it's just tachypnea shortly after birth, but TTN usually is self-limiting condition. It will resolve in two to three days of life. This is absolutely not true for the respiratory distress syndrome, which is a much more severe condition than TTN. The first thing that we need to mention about the RDS is that it's associated with prematurity. And the reason for this is that in the uterus, surfactant synthesis start at, starts at 20 weeks of gestation, and it only reaches the adult levels at approximately 35 weeks of gestation. So now you can imagine that if the baby is born prematurely, especially before 35 weeks, there is insufficient surfactant directly predisposing this baby to the RDS. From the physical manifestation point of view, RDS is also much more severe than the TTN, so there will be severe respiratory distress, hypoxia, and cyanosis. In this regard, RDS is similar to PPH, persistent pulmonary hypertension, because PPHN, N means newborn, so persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, PPHN also causes tachypnea and very severe hypoxia with cyanosis. Now let's move on to the chest x-ray findings of these three conditions. In TTN, what we'll see is perihilar linear streaking and the fluid within the interloper fissures. The idea is that the fluid that the the amniotic fluid that the baby aspirated gets into the interstitium of the lungs and this is why we can see the fluid within the interloper fissures and we can also see the perihilar linear streaking which indicate the accentuation of the pulmonary interstitium due to fluid accumulation. As for the respiratory distress syndrome, here we have the ground glass opacities with the low lung volumes. The idea is that as many alveoli collapse in RDS, the density of the lung tissue increases. And this is why we have low lung volumes. At the same time, the lungs of the patient with RDS weigh much more than the lungs of the patient without the RDS. Once again, the idea is that the density of the lung tissue increases. And we might also see the air bronchograms. Air bronchograms indicate the air-filled bronchi in the background of collapsed alveoli or consolidation. So what I'm trying to tell you, zoosamilers, is that air bronchograms are not specific for RDS. It can be seen in the causes in, in the conditions where we have pulmonary consolidation. For example, in case of lower pneumonia, pulmonary edema can also cause air bronchograms. And another condition that we're talking right now is a respiratory distress syndrome. And finally, 
the chest x-ray findings for persistent pulmonary hypertension are simply decreased pulmonary vascularity, but the lungs will be clear. The idea here is that the pulmonary vessels stay constricted and therefore they are not normally detectable. Uh, I mean, they, they are not detectable on the chest x-ray. This is why uh, we have decreased pulmonary vascularity. And this was discussion about the causes of the neonatal respiratory distress. Now let's discuss the common vascular lesions of the childhood. In this subsection of our today's episode, we'll talk about three conditions. This is nevus flamius or port wine stain. And we also have the nevus simplex and the hemangioma. Let's start by discussing the nevus flamius. Nevus flamius, or the port wine stain, is the capillary malformation which manifests as the red skin in the distribution of ophthalmic and maxillary branches of the trigeminal nerve, meaning the forehead, upper and lower eyelids, and the cheek all the way up until the upper lip is affected by this capillary malformation. Port wine stain can be an isolated finding without any other comorbidities. However, there is one extremely, extremely important disease that's one of the, that's a really high yield disease, which is accompanied by the nevus flamius. Guys, do you remember the neurological disease, specifically neurocutaneous disease, which is accompanied by uh, the Nevus flamius? I almost told you the answer right now. Mm -hmm. I agree. This is Sturge Weber syndrome, right? So, to briefly mention Sturge Weber syndrome, this is when the child has the uh, hemangioma in the pia meter and also in the trigeminal nerve distribution. This is why it's called encephalotrigeminal angiomatosis. We also have the tram track calcifications of the cerebral gyri, seizures, intellectual disability, early onset glaucoma, and so on and so forth. Let's not go get into details because we are discussing that disease in other episode. Let's get back to the vascular lesions of the childhood. And the next one that we'll discuss is nevus simplex. Uh, nevus simplex. Oh, sorry. Before we move on to nevus simplex... Let me mention one more thing about the nevus flamius. Nevus flamius is almost always unilateral, meaning it does not cross the midline. It's located on just one side of the face. And this is in contrast to nevus simplex because nevus simplex is usually located in the midline locations. Like it might be on the glabella, which is the space between the eyebrows. It might also be located on the nape of the neck, not necessarily in the exact midline, but on the nape of the neck. And it usually becomes more pronounced and red when the baby cries, but then nevus simplex fades away when the kid gets older. And finally, we have infantile hemangioma, which is also referred to as strawberry hemangioma. Strawberry hemangioma is a raised lesion. It's either papule or plaque. And 
it is also caused by vascular malformations. The main thing is that infantile hemangioma has a very good prognosis. And the clinical course of this condition is that strawberry hemangioma initially enlarges and then it involutes. And this is very important to know because some of us think that infantile hemangioma starts involuting from the very beginning, but that's not true. In the beginning, it starts to enlarge and after reaching a certain size, then it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. The treatment for strawberry hemangioma depends on the location and the size of the lesion. If infantile hemangioma is small and if it's on the region of the body where this hemangioma does not interfere with the important bodily functions, then we can just watchfully monitor the kid and we can educate the parents that this hemangioma will most likely go away on its own. However, if the strawberry hemangioma is located in the nose, nasopharynx, oropharynx, or the trachea, then there's high risk of bleeding in the respiratory tract, which can definitely lead to complications, or it might also cause the respiratory obstruction leading to the respiratory distress. And when we have such high-risk infantile hemangiomas, we can actually give the oral propranolol. Propranolol, as we know, is a non-selective beta blocker. Let's step back and let me ask you a question. Zeus Emiliers, why do you think that administration of propranolol can treat the infantile hemangioma? I hope you have the answer. But let me still tell you what, what the answer is. We know that infantile hemangioma is capillary malformation, and these are extra-large, super-dilated capillaries. We also know that on the vascular smooth muscle, we have beta-2 receptor, activation of which results in vasodilation. Now, if we block these beta-2 receptors on the vascular smooth muscle by propranolol, it means that the vessels will not dilate anymore. And in fact, they will start to shrink and shrink and shrink. And finally, we will accelerate the involution of the strawberry hemangioma. And this was the discussion about the common vascular lesions in the childhood. Let's move on to concussion. Concussion is the damage to the brain without any structural intracranial injuries. The idea is that there is a high impact trauma, which results in an abrupt, sudden deceleration of the person. And when there is deceleration of the head, the brain still continues to move towards the frontal bone and then it can hit the, hit the bone and that can cause the brain concussion and for the brain concussion the symptoms usually include the neurological disturbances like dizziness and disorientation usually there is amnesia of the day of the concussion 
but it usually does not cause severe amnesia, for example, retrograde or anterograde amnesia. And once again, there is no structural intracranial injury. It's very important to know the management of the patient with the brain concussion. The first thing that we need to consider is that we need to remove this patient from the same day physical activity. Let me give you an example. Let's say that the there is a 15-year-old boy who was playing rugby and then suddenly he was hit by another player and he fell down and he hit his head, right? In that case, let's say that he got concussion. If he exhibits the signs and symptoms of concussion, we should absolutely remove this kid from the match and we need to allow him to rest for at least 24 hours. At the same time, we should evaluate how severe the neurological impairment is in this patient. In adults and adolescents, we can use the GCS, which is Glasgow Calm Scale, but in young kids, we usually use the PCARN rules. We will not talk about these scales in this video because they are beyond our scope of today's discussion, but we'll definitely discuss them in the other episodes. And then after the patient experiences concussion, we should make sure that the patient returns to the normal physical and mental activity gradually. And here, let me tell you what I mean here. So when we talk about the physical activity, the patient should first start the light aerobic exercises. After this, the patient can move on to the non-contact sports and then if the patient wants to continue participating in the contact sports, then he or she can do it. The same principle applies to the mental return to the baseline functioning. At first, the patient with concussion should have the limited screen time to avoid the headache uh, and other neurological symptoms. And additionally, there should be academic accommodations like frequent breaks at school. There might be shortened days, etc. And this was discussion about concussion. We will now move on to congenital cytomegalovirus. The first thing that we should mention is that CMV is the most common congenital infection out of all torch infections. At the same time, the mode of transmission for CMV is multiple. CMV can be transmitted through urine, saliva, blood transfusion, sexual contact. It can be transmitted through almost any mode of transition but mostly it's the bodily fluids like urine and saliva. And when we talk about the congenital CMV, the main risk factor for the pregnant woman to get the CMV is to care for the younger children because CMV is really common in daycare settings. So if the lady has young children or child, and she takes care of that child while being pregnant at the same time, 
she might actually get the CMV from her child and she might be asymptomatic, but her future child might develop the symptoms from congenital CMV infection. Speaking of the symptoms, let's talk about what the clinical features are for the congenital CMV. There are some non-specific clinical features which are present in all torch infections. These include things like intrauterine growth restriction or IUGR. Okay, let me take a step back here and ask you something, guys. Zoosamilaries, do you remember if congenital infections cause symmetric or asymmetric IUGR? I hope you're telling me that it's symmetric IUGR. That's right. Which means that the head will also be small or proportionate to the body size. There might also be hepatosplenomegaly with jaundice, thrombocytopenia, and blueberry muffin rash. These three findings are also non-specific for torch infections. And out of these three findings, blueberry muffin rash has a very specific and high yield mechanism. Can you please tell me why the babies with torch infections develop the blueberry muffin rash? Are you saying that this rash is actually due to dermal extramedullary hematopoiesis? If you do, that's really cool because that's the right answer. Normally, the newborns have hematopoiesis in their axial skeleton and also in the appendicular, appendicular skeleton too. But when they get the torch infection, then the dermis of the skin also starts to make the blood cells. And those areas of hematopoiesis in the dermis look like the blueberry muffin spots on the baby. The absolute pathognomonic finding of the congenital CMV is periventricular calcifications on the head ultrasound. In other words, we will see the white opacities around the lateral ventricles of the brain. And let me take a step back here and compare this pattern of intracranial calcifications to two other microbes causing torch infections. The other one is congenital toxoplasmosis. And although we are not going to talk in detail about toxo here, let me tell you that toxoplasmosis results in diffuse intracranial calcifications. To say it in other words, the calcifications will not be located only around the ventricles. They will be diffusely scattered all across the brain. And the third microbe that can cause torch infections, torch infection, sorry, and can also cause the calcifications is Zika virus. Congenital Zika virus actually causes the subcortical calcifications. And this is also very important to compare to the calcification pattern of CMV and toxoplasmosis. Okay, now how do we diagnose congenital CMV? We can do the PCR or we can do the viral culture of the baby's urine or saliva. Because this is where we are most likely to find the CMV.
And then if congenital CMV infection is confirmed, we can treat the baby with valgancyclovir, which has a very set satisfactory oral bioavailability, and it's also effective for most of the CMV strains. And this was discussion about the congenital CMV. Now we will move on to congenital dacryostenosis, which is congenital stenosis, or the narrowing, of the nasolacrimal duct. Before we move any further in the discussion of this present of this condition, let's remind ourselves of the normal lacrimal apparatus. In the suprolateral portion of the upper eyelid, we have the lacrimal glands, right, which produce the tears. And the tears constantly bathe the cornea and sclera, and the tears move from lateral to the medial direction, and they are drained by the superior and inferior canaliculi into the lacrimal sac, which are located which are located on both sides at the medial canthus. And then lacrimal sac continues with nasal lacrimal duct, which finally opens up in the inferior nasal meatus. And now what we are talking about is the congenital narrowing of the nasal lacrimal duct. The idea is that normally during the embryonic period there should be complete canalization of the nasal lacrimal duct so that the tears can drain from the lacrimal sac all the way down to the nose. But for some reason there is insufficient canalization of one or both nasal lacrimal ducts. Now let's talk about the clinical features. And these features make sense. If there is narrowing of the nasal lacrimal duct, what do you think will happen to all of those tears? They will back up, right? They will back up in the lacrimal sac and then into the superior and inferior canaliculi, and then finally in the eye, right? Over the cornea and over the sclera. Therefore, we will have increased tearing. At the same time, there will be eyelash crusting, but importantly, the conjunctivae will be clear on both sides. And the reason for this is that congenital dacryostenosis itself is not an infection. It's a congenital narrowing of this nasal lacrimal duct. And this is why we won't have congenital injection, conjunct, sorry, not congenital, but conjunctival injection, which actually means the red eye. How do we manage the child with congenital dacryostenosis? Well, first, we try to observe because congenital dacryostenosis can actually resolve on its own. But during this time, we should initiate the lacrimal sac massage because if we massage the lacrimal sac, we can force the tears through the nasal lacrimal duct and we can open up that nasal lacrimal duct. However, if the symptoms of congenital dacryostenosis persist for more than six months after birth, then we should probe the nasal lacrimal duct on the affected side. And the probing will widen the lumen wherever it is narrow. 
Now let's talk about the complications of congenital dacryo stenosis, and these complications also make sense. We said that due to narrowing of the nasolacrimal duct, the tears will back up and they will accumulate in the lacrimal sac. When there is accumulation of excessive tears in the lacrimal sac, the lacrimal sac enlarges in size and it can actually become visible on the eye exam. This is called dacryocystocele, which indicates the enlargement of the lacrimal sac caused by excessive tear accumulation. On the other hand, as we know, obstruction of any hollow tube can cause bacterial overgrowth and infection proximal to that obstruction, and this is actually what happens when congenital dacryostenosis is complicated by dacryocystitis, which literally means inflammation of the lacrimal sac. There is insufficient drainage of the tears from the lacrimal sac, and bacteria can grow in that, in that tears, and we can get the dacryostenosis. And this is how we wrapped up the uh, discussion about congenital dacryostenosis. Let's talk about congenital diaphragmatic hernia. The name itself is self-explanatory. This is congenital herniation of the intestines through the diaphragm. It usually happens on the left side. And can you tell me why it is rare on the right side? If you are saying that right-sided hemidiaphragm is protected by the liver, you are absolutely right. The reason why we have congenital diaphragmatic hernia is that there is incomplete fusion of the pleuroperitoneal folds. Pleuroperitoneal folds participate in the formation of the diaphragmatic domes, right, or simply diaphragm. And if pleuroperitoneal folds are incompletely developed, it means that there is literally a hole in the diaphragm and the bowels can herniate through that hole. Sometimes even larger organs like spleen or stomach can herniate, but that's a very, very severe case. We should know that congenital diaphragmatic hernia is mostly located on the posterolateral side on the left, and that's called Bochdelic hernia, but it can also be located anteriorly, in which case it's called Morgagni hernia. Let's talk about what happens to the baby with congenital diaphragmatic hernia. When there are bowels in the thoracic cavity, it means that the ipsilateral lung cannot expand normally. And we know that in utero, the lung expansion is vital for the normal development and septation of the lung tissue. So if we have restricted lung expansion on the ipsilateral side due to bowels compressing the lungs from the pleural cavity it means that we will have ipsilateral pulmonary hypoplasia and we might also have pulmonary hypertension because not only the alveoli are restricted in expansion but also the pulmonary vessels in the ipsilateral lung are constricted which contributes to the pulmonary hypertension. 
Clinically, the baby will exhibit respiratory distress due to the ipsilateral pulmonary hypoplasia, and this will happen within hours after birth because this is a congenital defect. The baby is born with diaphragmatic hernia in this case. We might hear, we might have the absent breath sounds ipsilateral to the defect. The idea is that when we put the stethoscope on the baby's chest, on the side where we have the diaphragmatic hernia, mostly that's the left side, we will be able to hear the bowel sounds rather than the breath sounds. Additionally, we might have the concave abdomen, which is also called the scaphoid abdomen. Scaphoid abdomen is when the baby's abdomen is just sunk down, so it's depressed or concave. And on the other hand, the chest is expanded. It's barrel-shaped. This is totally abnormal for the neonate because we know that normally neonates have protuberant or convex abdomen and they have moderate-sized chest. But in case of congenital diaphragmatic hernia, the bowels move upward through the diaphragmatic hole, which means that the volume of the peritoneal cavity decreases because bowels don't occupy that space anymore. But on the other hand, bowels occupy the pleural cavity, right? That's why there will be expansion of the chest, especially on the affected side. In order to diagnose congenital diaphragmatic hernia, we need to do the chest x-ray because the problem is at the level of the lungs. On the chest x-ray, we will see the typical bowel loops, the presence of which is totally abnormal in the thoracic cavity. And if there is a large diaphragmatic hernia, we might even see the contralateral displacement of the heart and the whole mediastinum. The idea is that those bowel loops compress the lungs and also the mediastinum to the contralateral side. Now, how do we manage the newborn with congenital diaphragmatic hernia? We know and we said that the main problem with these newborns is the respiratory distress. So first, we might need to perform the endotracheal intubation. At the same time, we usually perform the gastric decompression by the NG tube or nasogastric tube. And this is necessary in order to decompress the bowels so that they do not compress the lungs too much. And finally, the definitive treatment is surgical correction. We need to bring the bowels back into the peritoneal cavity and to close that hole in the diaphragm so that the bowels don't herniate anymore. And this is the discussion about congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Let's move on to congenital toxoplasmosis. If you remember zoosemilias, we talked extensively about the pattern of intracranial calcification earlier in this episode, so it will be really fast. The thing that we have not mentioned about congenital toxo is the risk factors. The most common way of toxoplasma transmission in the pregnant woman is ingestion of the raw undercooked meat, especially that of pork. And this is very important because I think most of us, the medical students, remember the association of toxoplasma and the cat feces because the cats shed the toxoplasma in their feces. 
and if the pregnant woman takes care of the cats and if she clears the cat litter, she might be exposed to the toxoplasma. However, this is not the most common mode of transmission of toxoplasmosis. At the same time, unwashed fruits and vegetables are also considered to be the risk factor for congenital toxo. And the idea is that some fruits and vegetables come from the soil. The soil itself can be contaminated by the cat feces, which, uh, like, the, and the cats shed toxoplasma in their feces, right? Meaning, unwashed fruits and vegetables might contain toxoplasma. As for the clinical features of congenital toxoplasmosis, well, these babies have those non-specific signs of the torch infections that we already discussed uh, before. This is jaundice, intrauterine growth restriction, hepatosplenomegaly, and the blueberry muffin rash. And as we also mentioned before, congenital toxo is characterized by diffuse intracranial calcifications. The two other manifestations are chorioretinitis, and hydrocephalus. So this is the triad of congenital toxo. We have diffuse intracranial calcifications, we have hydrocephalus, and chorioretinitis. Diagnosis of toxoplasma infection happens through serology. We can check toxoplasma IgM antibody in the feta, in the, not, sorry, not the fetus, but the neonate, and we can also check the toxoplasma IgG antibodies in the mom. If antitoxoplasma IgM antibody is positive in the neonate, it means that he or she has an acute infection with toxoplasma. The treatment for the newborn with congenital toxoplasmosis is the same that we use in adults. That's pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, and also the folate to counteract the effect of pyrimethamine on dihydrofolate reductase. And this was congenital toxoplasmosis. Let's now move on to congenital Zika syndrome. Zika virus, as we know, is the flavivirus. It's a single-stranded positive RNA virus. And Zika virus is usually transmitted by the bite of Aedes aegypti mosquito, but it can also be transmitted sexually, and it can certainly be transmitted vertically, specifically transplacentally. This is how we get the congenital Zika syndrome. The main thing to know about Zika virus infection in the fetus is that it infects the neural progenitor cells, and the main symptoms and signs of Zika virus, congenital Zika syndrome, are related to CNS impairment. The patients with congenital Zika usually have microcephaly and they might have craniofacial dysmorphism. From the neurological abnormalities, we might have spasticity, seizures, ocular abnormalities. But what will help you answer the question about the congenital Zika syndrome is the pattern of calcification on the head ultrasound. And I think we are mentioning this the second time already in this episode. As we said previously, congenital Zika syndrome is characterized by subcortical calcifications. 
In other words, calcium deposits occur at the junction, at the gray-white matter junction, immediately below the cortex. And congenital Zika syndrome also causes cortical thinning in the neonates. The diagnosis usually includes the PCR for detection of the Zika RNA. And this is how we wrapped up congenital Zika. Let's talk about the constitutional delay of growth and puberty. This is when the child has a delay in the linear growth and also in the puberty. Let's say that we have a boy at the age of 13 who has not started developing the secondary sexual characteristics or who has not increased the speed of his linear growth. But please don't get me wrong, this disease of constitutional delay of growth and puberty is not restricted to the males. It can also happen to the uh, girls, young girls. And as the name implies, both puberty and the growth are delayed. But there is an important thing to mention here. Although they have short stature, they have normal growth velocity. In other words, they simply start growing in height later than the other children. But if we talk just about the growth velocity, it's normal. And they also have delayed bone age. If we perform the wrist and the hand x-ray in these patients, their bone age will be lower than their chronological age. Chronological age is the age after since the birth or the actual age. How do we manage the patients with constitutional delay of growth and puberty? Before we go to the management, sorry, let me tell you one thing. These patients usually have the family history of the same condition. In most of the cases, either one of the parents reports that he or she, himself or herself, was so-called late bloomer. In other words, they also had this constitutional delay and it's very important to look for that positive family history in these children. Now let's move on to the management. Management is reassurance at first because as we mentioned, these children are simply late bloomers. They start their puberty and accelerated linear, uh, linear growth later than the than they should normally do but at the beginning at the at the end of the day they will reach the normal adult height in most of the cases and this is the usual this is the most common concern for the parents with the kid with this condition they usually ask will my child be able to achieve the normal adult height and the answer is yes in most cases and this was discussion of the constitutional delay of growth and puberty. We will now discuss one of the highest yield conditions in PEATS. This is croup. Croup is also known as acute laryngotracheitis or acute laryngotracheobronchitis. And both of these names are legit and they are self-explanatory. This is a viral infection 
of larynx, trachea, and possibly bronchi. To be more specific, the most common virus accounting for most of the cases of the croup is... Can you tell me the virus? Yes, parainfluenza. Parainfluenza virus, which is in the group of paramyxoviridae. The children, the, the age of the children who get the croup most of the time ranges from six months to three years. And croup is especially common in fall and also in early winter. Now, what are the clinical features of this condition? Well, generally, croup causes subglottic stenosis. It causes proximal tracheal stenosis. And if we perform the chest x-ray on the patient with croup, we will see this characteristic steeple sign. So steeple is this uh, pointed, pointy roof. And this is what the trachea looks like in croup. The patient will have inspiratory strider. Strider always happens with upper airway obstruction or narrowing in contrast to wheezing, which happens in lower respiratory narrowing or obstruction, like in respiratory syncytial virus, right? Or pneumonitis, uh, sorry, not pneumonitis, but bronchiolitis, sorry. In croup, on the other hand, we have inspiratory strider. Very characteristically, these children also have the barking cough and hoarseness. Now, how do we treat the children with croup. It depends on whether they have mild or moderate to severe croup. How do we differentiate the severity of croup? It depends on whether the patient has strider at rest. If there is no strider at rest, then we call it the mild croup. And for the mild croup, humidified air might be the only treatment that we need. We might actually add the corticosteroids, but it's not 100% necessary. However, if the patient has moderate or severe, severe croup, which means that the patient has strider at rest, then we definitely need the corticosteroids and we also need the nebulized epinephrine. So uh, nebulized epinephrine, which is racemic epinephrine, opens up those obstructed uh, airways, specifically the larynx and the trachea. And the word racemic means that, excuse me, and racemic epinephrine means that there is 50%, 50-50 ratio of L and D enantiomers of the epinephrine. Finally, how do we prevent the transmission of croup? Well, Croup is transmitted via respiratory droplets. However, it can also be transmitted via direct contact. And also, it can be acquired from the contaminated surfaces. Which means that hand washing, decontamination of the surfaces, and proper ventilation are all useful ways to prevent transmission of the croup. And this is how we wrapped up discussion about the croup. Now we will move on to the differential diagnosis of crying in the young infants. And before we start this, I'd like to tell you that, well, as we know, the infants can cry for 
many, many different reasons. And in most of the cases, it's very difficult to find out what the real reason for crying is. So firstly, crying in young infants can be normal. And normal crying is when the infant is consolable during the crying episodes. And if crying occurs for less than three hours per day. These are the characteristics of the normal crying pattern. However, let's take a look at another diagnosis in this uh, differential, which is called the colic, the infantile colic. Well, infantile colic is when the infant cries for at least three hours per day, and usually in the evenings, for at least three days per week, and the infant is less than three months of age. Infantile colic is almost a diagnosis of exclusion because the infant should be healthy. So we should exclude the other causes of crying infant, and then we can say that the infant has the infantile colic. Gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, can also cause crying in infants. But let me tell you one thing. In infants, we might have the physiological gastroesophageal reflux, or we might have the pathological gastroesophageal reflux, or a GERD. Now, how, would we do, how do we differentiate these two? When there is physiologic reflux due to short esophagus and relatively weak tone of the lower esophageal sphincter, the baby is sometimes called happy spitter. In other words, there is the regurgitation of the food immediately after breastfeeding. However, the baby looks well and baby is playful and happy in contrast to the GERD, in which case we have this frequent spit up and at the same time baby is in distress and is crying. And GERD is also characterized by a very characteristic sign, which is arching of the back after feeding, and it's called the Sandifer syndrome. Sandifer syndrome, or the back arching after feeding, is done to prevent the regurgitation of the food. Infection can also cause crying in the infants, right? And infection can affect potentially any organ system. Let's start with talking about the acute otitis media because AOM is one of the most common infections in young population, right? Because they have shorter and straight and wider nasopharyngeal uh, tube. I mean, eustachian tube. Pharyngotympanic tube, sorry. Okay, so it, when the patient has acute otitis media, and this is the reason for crying, then we will see the bulging tympanic membrane in either of the ears, and there might also be a fever. In case of meningitis, there will be fever, and plus there will be bulging fontanelle as a sign of increased intracranial pressure. The infant who has septic arthritis will have fever, crying, and at the same time, she or he will have limited extremity movement at the joint that is infected. For example, if there's septic arthritis of the hip, then whenever we manipulate the baby's hip, the baby will start crying, or the crying will get worse. 
And then UTI can also be present in the infants, but the clinical features of UTI are not as clear and as explicit as those of the other infections that we discussed right now. So in case of UTI, we have fever. We might also have the vomiting and poor feeding. Moving on from infections, let's talk about intussusception very briefly in the context of crying infants. Intussusception can occur in infants, and we know that intussusception is an episodic disease. So mostly the terminal ileum telescopes into the cecum episodically, which causes the abdominal pain, and the baby draws the legs to the abdomen, which relieves that pain. There might be the bilious vomiting or the bloody stools if there is concomitant necrosis of the telescoped part of the intestines. We also have here the torsion. Torsion might happen to the testes that we call testicular torsion or the ovaries that we call ovarian torsion. If the infant has testicular torsion, then we'll have testicular swelling, redness, absent cremasteric reflex, and all of those classical signs that we know for the testicular torsion. In case of the ovarian torsion, there will be tender abdomen and there will be abdominal distension. And finally, trauma can cause crying in the infant. There is one condition called hair tourniquet. Have you heard about this condition, guys? Hair tourniquet is when the hair on the body accidentally wraps around the digit, for example, on the finger or on the toe, and then it, it causes this depression of the skin on the toe or the finger, which is very painful. There might also be corneal abrasion, which presents with tearing and photophobia, and there will be positive fluorescing stain. And finally, if the infant is abused, or if the infant has fractured due to abuse, we might also see excessive crying, but we'll also see the other signs of abuse like bruising, lacerations, and some asymmetric movements due to the fractures. And this was discussion of crying in the infants. The final condition that we talked talk about in this episode is cryptorchidism. Cryptorchidism literally means hidden testes. This is when the testicle, either unilaterally or bilaterally, does not descend in the scrotal sac. The risk factors for cryptorchidism are very important to remember. The first and probably the highest yield risk factor is prematurity. Well, we know that the descent, testicular descent from the abdominal cavity all the way to the scrotum is a gradual process and it takes time across the gestation. So if the baby is born premature, the testis might not be might not have reached the destination or the scrotum yet. At the same time, if the baby is small for gestational age or if she, if he not she but he is a low birth weight, meaning less than 2.5 kg, that's also a risk factor. Additionally, cryptorchidism might be associated with genetic disorders as well. Now, what will we see on the cryptorchidism? The boy will have the empty hemiscrotum, or both of the scrotum, and the scrotum will be hypoplastic or poorly rogated because 
the testicle is not there yet. We might actually have the inguinal fullness if the testicle is in the inguinal canal. The treatment for cryptorchidism is orchiopexy before one year of age. The orchiopexy is pulling and fixation of the testis to the scrotal sac. And this should happen before one year of age in case of cryptorchidism to avoid the potential complications of this condition. Now, speaking of complications, what are those conditions that complicate the testicular torsion? The boy who has, uh, sorry, complicate the cryptorchidism, not testicular torsion. So the boy that has cryptorchidism might develop the inguinal hernia or testicular torsion because in case of cryptorchidism, there is no attachment between the testicle and the scrotal sac, which means that the testis is freely movable relative to the spermatic cord, which predisposes to testicular torsion. More importantly, since the testes in cryptorchidism are located in the abdominal cavity where the core temperature is high, there's a risk for subfertility. Because let me remind you one thing, or let me ask this in a question format. Guys, do you remember which cells in the testicle are temperature sensitive? Are you saying Sertoli cells? You are totally right. And if you are saying Sertoli cells, then uh, we, we know that Sertoli cells are necessary for spermatogenesis and spermiogenesis, which means that if Sertoli cells don't work, then spermatogenesis doesn't proceed normally, which leads to subfertility. The highest yield complication of testicular so cryptorchidism is the increased risk for testicular cancer especially for seminoma. Uh, and, and the reason is that when, there is, when the testes are retained in the high temperature, there might be degeneration of the germ cells into the malignant cells. It's important to note that orchiopexy does not decrease the risk for testicular cancer. It simply increased the probability of detecting the cancer early. Okay, we have come to an end of our episode and let's discuss what we have, let's repeat what we have discussed today. We have discussed multiple different topics across the pediatrics today. The main take-home message from our episode is to know the different diagnostic algorithms and the treatment options for these conditions. You can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attentions with Samuel Ears and see you on the next episode.